Hello, and welcome to episode 98 of Constructing Comics, a podcast building stories one page and one panel at a time. On this episode, we have an interview with Alan Rousset. Alan is the creator of Project Impact. This is Matt, and I'm joined by Constructing Comics co-host Noah. Hey there. Alan, thanks so much for being on. Why don't you start us off with a little bit about yourself, and then we'll take a uh, more further look into your comic, Project Impact. Thank you very much for having me, uh, Matt and Noah. Uh, very nice to uh, meet you guys uh, finally after a couple of uh, uh, email back and forth. Um, well, I am a uh, Canadian uh, comic book writer, uh, though I guess uh, in my regular life I'm uh, a uh, substitute teacher and PhD candidate uh, at the, the local university here. Um, I have been working on Project Impact in various forms for the last couple of years. Uh, it's taken a little bit of time to get off the ground, but uh, it's, uh, it's nice to have it finally out and into the public eye. Cool. So um, what are some of the, uh, the inspirations that you had for the comics? There's a few things I, might, I think I might be able to guess, but I want to, I want to hear from, from you first. Uh, okay. Uh, okay, absolutely. Um, so uh, when it comes to this comic itself, it just it uh, sort of came from a um, almost accidentally, really. Uh, I had been looking around, uh, I just sort of getting back into comics, and I sort of stumbled upon a redesign of uh, Captain Canuck that Kalman uh, uh, Endrasowski had done for uh, Chapter House comics. Okay. Uh, that's going back, I think, to about 2015 or so. And through that, that led me into seeing a variety of different um, Canadian comic-related Facebook groups. And I started seeing these original characters that were popping up on like, the banners of the different uh, Facebook groups. And it just sort of prompted me to, uh, I guess, break up the uh, creativity a little bit and see if I could actually get my characters to sort of join them on that banner. Um, definitely, uh, there have been, um, uh, influences naturally, the natural comparison would be awful, so I'm sure. Um, to a certain extent, uh, the, you know, the Avengers, um, those, those are, I guess, um, but I want to, to have a Canadian version of it. Uh, when I look at Alpha Flight, they take a lot of, um, various sort of, like, stereotypical hit me over the head with. You know, Canadian aspects of things, and I wanted to sort of get my opportunity to do sort of my version of Alpha Flight if I were to, to come up with it. I got yeah. the Alpha Flight in there. I was I was like at one point I was like, oh, this is like an Alpha Flight comic, and uh, I've not read much Alpha Flight, even though I own an original art page from Alpha Flight. But I do love the idea. I love the characters that are in there. I, I always get giddy when. Sasquatch pops up in any Marvel comic. Oh yeah, Sasquatch is fantastic. Uh, yeah. I was never personally very happy with uh, North Star and Aurora um, yeah. because I thought that um, just the way that they have them interact and act uh, actually ends up being kind of like almost insulting to like the French Canadian portion okay. of Canada, which is actually kind of ironic because like. Quebec is a huge consumer of, uh, you know, trade paperbacks and comics and graphics and you know, novels and stuff in general. So to sort of have the only French Canadian characters in the Marvel Universe be kind of caricatures of them uh, is kind of, you know, it, it was a strange choice. Strange, strange choice. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, so I saw a little bit of, of course, Alpha Flight, but I also saw a little bit of X-Men, and um, I don't know if this was something that you had been familiar with, but uh, the, the G.I. Joe cartoon from the, from the oh, 80s, yeah. I know that's mm-hmm. very American, but the, mm-hmm. the, the, the humor in this book was very much very similar to the to the humor that was in those old G.I. Joe cartoons. Uh, well, certainly, like, I, I grew up, like, I was born in the mid, uh, mid-70s, so I uh, was part of the, uh, both the G.I. Joe and Transformers, your afternoon cartoon lineup uh, growing up, so uh, certainly that, uh, um, I can see where you would see that, like, when I was doing the initial character designs um, in conjunction with the, uh, um, like I did the initial uh, design using uh, a website called Hero Machine um, okay. that allowed me to sort of give um, a better or more refined version of what I could kind of draw myself. Because um, mm-hmm. at this point, while I can I can sketch about as well as or I can sketch well enough to impress elementary school kids, but not well enough to actually put out my own book. Um, but that sort of site, I wanted to. A, a, a sort of uniformity to their um, their outfits because I, I felt that okay, well, if they're all getting their gear from the same source, then they should at least have some sort of somewhat visual cues that might link them together. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think that did get translated fairly well um, on the page. Um, I think with um, just the the, uh, the humor, I, I was just trying to you know uh, convey. Um, semi-realistic uh, conversations, but also, again, just um, the Moose character, for instance, he's, he thinks he's hilarious. Nobody else does, but he, he thinks he's hilarious. So that, that was sort of uh, something that I, I could be able to lean into a little bit, so I go through uh, But uh, um, yeah. So yeah, certainly there, there is uh, probably subconsciously some aspects of uh, G.I. Joe how true were the designs like the final designs that uh like steven did for the characters how close are they to the ones that you initially like Um, created for the characters i think for the most part like the ones that went through the biggest changes would be um the polar knight character and the french guardian character mainly because uh one of the downfalls of pure machine is that uh, when you come up with an armored character pretty much everything comes out looking like that Right, and I wanted to make sure that whatever we had visually, while still being an armored character, was not going to immediately um, be seen as like a carbon copy of Iron Man. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one thing. Um, with the Polar Knight one, when my initial designs went out, I, I wasn't happy with the way that they were looking. He was looking more like a Power Ranger than anything else, and I wanted something that was more like a um, a modern-ish Viking aspect of things, but not the like pop culture version of Vikings with, with big horns on the helmets and things like that. Right. Um, so we went back and we actually looked at um, like traditional, authentic uh, Viking armor looks and helmets and things like that. And like, okay, well, how can we manage to sort of modernize this or make this appear a little bit more uh, up-to-date and still have a bit of a feel to it? So those would be probably the two biggest ones that changes. Now, that being said, uh, the Moose character is going to go through a bit of a redesign going forward. Okay. Um, because the, um, I'm not sure whether or not you got a chance to see any of the other uh, images, but uh, 
the uh, Rich Lumsden, who did the, uh, the lettering and prepress for uh, issue two, as well as he did some formatting things for issue one. Um, we got a kick out of the concept of um, you know, a big strong guy named Moose. And so he came up with his own ideas. And when I looked at the, what his sort of pitch was, I was just like, yeah, slapping myself that I hadn't figured out those things myself. Okay. And it's like, so I think going forward, he's going to certainly visually, but there's going to be like more aspects that would be in, in tune with uh, like um, Ben Grimm, the thing, for instance. So like, okay. um, I'm not sure. I don't think I have the ability to share any files on this. Yeah. Oh well. Anyway, but um, on our Instagram uh, page, you'd be able to find sort of a um, a moose redesign. Mm -hmm. okay. And so the little things that go popping up in that redesign, I was just shocked. They're, they're so obvious in retrospect that I'm just oh, I can't believe I didn't get into it. And he does just really so like um, what I started to do is uh, in issue two, for instance, you'll start to see that he's, he's starting to grow the facial hair. Yeah. So by the next his, by his next appearance, he will have fully grown out the, uh, the facial hair to look more in tune with the redesign because even like the subtle things like the, the M on the outfit, um, the the two fingers and the thumb to like be both actually what like actual knees sorry knees feet would look like. Uh, the the, the two-toed uh, boots, little things like that. That I was like, oh, I can't believe that I missed those opportunities the first time around. But yeah, um, so those, yeah, so that that's going to be slowly, you know, going to be like definitely um, doing something a little bit more uh, showy with the uh, the costume. It's going to be worked in more with uh, storylines as far as uh, uh, why it is that all of a sudden they start looking. Yeah, I like the redesign a lot. He's very cool looking. I just looked him up. Yeah. Yeah, and superheroes changing their, their looks and their costume is something that, uh, you know, us as readers and superhero fans are, are very used to. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, somebody coming out with a, with a new look or a new uniform is something that, uh, you know, we're not a, unaccustomed to. Right. Uh, so how did you find the, the artist for this book? Uh, this, it was kind of by accident. Um, I had actually, I had... He was uh, the third artist I ended up uh, working with on this. The first one was a gentleman from Spain who was excellent. Um, and I think really what it came down to is a um, combination of language barrier to a certain point, but also the uh, U.S. and Canadian exchange rate okay. was just killing me. Um, so I couldn't. I, I had him do like a, an initial four page sort of proof of concept sort of idea. And I just realized with the exchange rate, like for every four pages that I was uh, putting out, it was costing me an extra hundred bucks with the exchange rate. Oh, wow. And when you've got yourself a 32 page story, that's going to add up pretty quick. Um, so I wanted to try and find something a little bit more manageable. Um, and I ran into uh, Stefan at a uh, local comic convention when I was trying to. Um, decide what to do about my second artist who just wasn't producing like he wasn't doing much of anything like three months into the project and he hadn't even given me any design sketches so i'm like okay this guy's probably gonna have to go and i started talking to stefan at this um convention like i liked uh particularly he's, he's a major spider-man fan okay. uh particularly uh bagley's spider-man so he um so he ended up seeing um 
case, professional portfolio um, is, is very daily-esque in terms of what he tries to do. Um, so we started talking, and I had asked him, I was impressed with what I saw, and I said, okay, well, what's your typical page rate? And he gave me a number, and I said, okay, well, here, uh, read the script. If you think there's something there, let's try and work something out. And he wrote me, like, he basically the next day, I get an email back from him saying, okay, I think we got something here. Um, let's see what we can do. And it just sort of built from there. So we spent a, a, probably the next month or so refining character designs and just sort of deciding um, as what was going to be the right look for the characters. And then uh, we started working on getting the first book out there. Very and cool. uh, who is the who's uh, the colorist on this book? Okay, um, the first one, the colorist is uh, a gentleman from Michigan named uh, Gary Scott Beatty. Uh, I had run across him. I had been talking to another Canadian creator, um, a couple of them actually. Uh, one in particular, though, named uh, Andrew Collis. He had put out a book called. I don't know what book was on. Um, he had put out a book. In well, a few years ago, Heroic, that's what it was. Uh, Zenith Comics presents Heroic. And okay. it was really solid book. So uh, I'd asked him, uh, okay, well, do you have any recommendations for who a colorist would be? And he, uh, he immediately said, well, talk to Gary. And so I um, you know, got in touch with Gary. We worked things out. And he actually uh, was like, okay, well, I can do the coloring. And, you know, if you want, I can also do the lettering. And seemed like a pretty, uh, pretty decent deal. But uh, I'd also been looking at some other colorists as well. And um, the the further up the food chain you go, the more costly the uh, the page rates end up being. And um, like, unlike a lot of creators out there, a lot of the indie creators, I I was paying everything out of pocket. I I, uh, I liked the crowdfunding concept, but it didn't really well. To me, you need actually to have a following to be able to pull that off successfully. Mm-hmm. And I believe that, again, as far as I'm concerned, if somebody puts in the time of the work, they should you know, be rewarded for their efforts. They, they mm-hmm. shouldn't be expecting some sort of back-end thing on the, the hopes that my idea is actually good. Um, so I've, I've elected to you know, um, self-finance the entire venture at this point um, to try and just get things out. And then we'll see what happens for, for issue three. But it's like, that's, networking idea of uh, well, who do you recommend, who have you worked with, who's good, you know, and um, yeah, I, I took the suggestions and uh, found Gary, and Gary was great. Um, now, for the second issue, I had moved on to Linda, uh, because there was always that little part of me that wanted an all-Canadian creative team, Okay. and she, um, I think this is her first book that she's worked on. Uh, but she was certainly this was one of her first opportunities, and um, I guess I was here talking to her. I saw some of like the practice pages she was doing. I thought, you know what, she, she's pretty good. Let's see what uh, let's see what she could do possibly with our stuff. So um, I sent her some some sample pages, and uh, I liked the direction she was going with things, and we just started working things out. And just between the group of us, we we started you know collaborating and um, providing feedback as far as. Uh, what um, what was working, what wasn't working, how we're going to fix this, what are we going to change here, you know, what sort of effect are we going to add? It's going to evolve from there. Yeah, and I, 
I think one thing that one thing that uh, actually works with the uh, the the colors change is uh, you had a lot of like darker scenes like in the first issue, uh-huh. and then in the second issue there was more like you know daylight scenes. There's a lot of scenes involving you know uh, illumination and fire. So it was uh-huh. almost like a tonal shift, which uh-huh. which worked from from one to two. Um, and what I really liked was uh, the first couple of pages on um, the the first issue, the coloring it almost looked like that old like marvel like coloring when they had like the like the four colors that they would sort of mostly use so it looked a little bit like that but it also looked modern at the same time so it was really really like pleasing to to look at yeah well no i i think that the um there were definitely there, there were some aspects of things like i know that uh we did have uh some discussions about um, light sources and how things would end up working. And mm-hmm. uh, one thing that, that uh, Gary had pointed out is that you got a lot of stuff going on at night here. There's, there's going to be a lot of blues and a lot of dark things here. We got to be, be mindful to not make uh, the images come out muddy. Okay. Uh, because again, if you've got too many of these things and it's not applied properly, then again, you're going to end up with, with something that doesn't translate well, particularly when you get to print. Okay. And I was going to ask you about, uh, so like when you were going into this story, there's definitely a thread of a long going series. You know, there are, there are characters popping up at the end of each issue that are sort of building towards something, but there seems to be, at least from the first two issues, more of an episodic approach where you have a contained story within one issue. Um, would you, would you mind sort of talking about your, your, uh, inspiration there and sort of why you wanted to go for that approach rather than something like, you know, a, a long, like, you know, one story throughout a bunch of different issues. Yeah. Well, um, there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, that was deliberate. It was a deliberate choice on my part. Uh, um, in terms of when I was growing up uh, and, and reading through the comics, I'm sure there were the continuous threads, but I definitely grew up in more of the Jim Shooter era of Marvel, for instance, where you are ideally having a beginning, middle, and end of each issue because every issue could potentially be somebody's entry into the, into the comic. Um, my other concern was, and I, I found this with a couple of other series, like uh, the Heroic series that I had mentioned earlier, that was, I think, originally, it, it put out two issues and it was meant to be, I think, maybe an eight to 12 issue series. So at this point, he's done two issues and he hasn't put out anything else. So if you've got yourself a developed fan base, then you're kind of left hanging and you're at the mercy of, well, are we even going to get a position? And from my perspective, I thought, okay, well, I don't know if my ideas are going to catch on or if they're going to fall flat or what. So from a storytelling perspective, if I can at least provide like a complete story, even if it's like a Monster of the Week style thing, then readers should at least be satisfied that they they're not left hanging now the downside of that is that you don't get the sort of anxious anticipation for the next issue um but i, I think it was a worthwhile trade-off because at least this way i um if everything goes well then i'll continue to sort of go into it mm-hmm. um but if it doesn't then i don't leave whatever fans i do end up uh having followed the series, be left hanging, like, well, whatever happened to this plot thread, what was going to happen to this thing? So at least this way, 
you get a sense that something bigger is coming, but it, it's not the full thrust of the book. So they should be feeling somewhat satisfied by the end that uh, they've gotten a, a bit of character development, a bit of world building, and just like a, a full story in each issue. I also like how you, uh, at least in the first two issues, you highlight different people in each one. So the first one is all from the perspective of, um, let me try, I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, he's narrating the whole time. It's, um, oh, this the page pulled up. Yeah. Is it, yeah. yeah, I think it's, I think it, it, it's, it's, it's Paul Sauer, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now he, um, so he is the character, I guess, that's sort of like lived in my head the longest at this point. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I know him a lot better and, Initially, the first draft of the team didn't even have him on it. Wow. And I had thought, well, if I'm going to do this, then in order to present it in a way that it's going to feel natural for me, I, I should actually be using a character that is more looking with the longer. And so I, I brought him in in um, a role that I think would be somewhat fitting. Um, the initial version of the character would have been like a 20 something or whatever. And I was thought, no, you know what, I'm going to age him up to, you know, again, late 30s sort of idea and just uh, have him running the show. Um, but yeah, I did try and I, I tried in the first issue to make sure that each character had some sort of like moment to sort of demonstrate to a certain extent what they could do. Um, but you may notice that Sizem, who popped up in the second issue, didn't do anything in the first issue. Right. And that's mainly because I didn't really, well, I started looking at his power set and what he said, what sort of thing he could do. And I thought, realistically, if this guy started using his powers, he's going to destroy the entire place. And that sort of led into some story ideas in its own way. So I sort of had him sitting on the bench. And then I thought, well, okay, well, for issue two, since we didn't, we didn't really do anything, he needed his time to, to develop as well. So I gave him some breathing space. Um, and then, since in a lot of ways he kind of holds Pulsar responsible for the fact that he's getting benched as often as he is, I figured it, that that would make a, he would make a good counterpoint character just to balance off the issue. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, and I also like how the first half of the book is is structured with you know background and story of 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 seism of, of seismic. And um, then, um, then the last half is just like a straight action sequence mm -hmm. that's very reminiscent of something like Big Trouble in Little China. Or well, I, cool I, like I tried, yeah, and that's the thing. Like, I tried. Yeah. I started thinking about uh, things like, okay, so if you've got yourself conceivably this ancient dragon spirit trapped in an idol, what are the chances that it's going to speak English? Pretty, yeah. you know, non-existent. Mm -hmm. So that's why there's a portion where the dragon's speaking in uh, Mandarin, and Halter kind of looking at him and go, "I didn't get any of that." Yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, so that was sort of the thing. That now one of the things that I also tried to do to lend a little bit of, you know, again more authenticity is the locations that are mentioned in both of the books actually do exist. Oh. And they do look like what they are portrayed. So, for instance, in the first issue, when you've got the uh, the, the, the hydroelectric generating station, that exists. It, it, it's a real place. You know, uh, the buildings look like that. The interiors look more or less like that. 
uh, I haven't been able to get like a full tour of the place because you know, not exactly a tourist lo- you know, location. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I have been I, I sent images to make sure that that was authentic. And then the the um, in the second issue when you've got the villain come, he comes out with the uh, one of the doors of the uh, Royal Interior Museum that door structure exists as it's been as it's been portrayed the streetscape that is in the background exists as it was portrayed in the issue so like we did our best to try and make sure that this was um faithful as best we could to the locations that we are uh and one of my favorite parts of both books are the action sequences they're very well paced and i wanted to know your approach to that do you sort of are you thinking about, you know, how much dialogue is on one page to hold a beat, you know, or, or like, you know, how many page, how many panels are silent just for like, you know, quick action while you're writing the script? Um, well, I, when I was looking at some of the stuff, uh, now in the second one, um, Stefan and I had a lot more discussion in terms of, of uh, like, okay, so you've got five panels here. I think it might work better than four. So there was a lot more collaboration in terms of how we're going to view the action in issue two. Uh, as far as issue one went, um, I didn't want to, I, I wanted to make sure that there was action, and I wanted to make sure that there was enough people featured, but you'll notice that each character who is participating in the action gets basically two pages worth of action before they shift to the next location. And a lot of that, if this is actually in printed form, basically when you turn the page, that's when you would have shift lo- shifted location to a different set of characters and their perspective. Um, so I, so that it wouldn't be a sort of an abrupt stop for, uh, readers on what's going on here, but like just, I, I was keeping in mind the idea of, okay, well, when you turn the page, okay, now you've got, um, like, damsel swearing off the survivor, okay, mm-hmm. and maybe as you're going a little further, okay, now you've got, like, Ransack swearing off with the uh, French Guard, and getting a little bit of, um, I guess uh, I didn't want to overdo it because I had seen actually there are, were some other indie issues that I've seen where I had counted there was like a nine page battle sequence between the hero and this giant robot and I was like I had gotten to a point when I'm reading this thing going okay I, I get the picture let's move on I know you got a giant robot let's let's speed it up so I wanted to make sure that I didn't go uh, exhausting readers by spending too much time in one spot. But I also want to make sure that I, I dipped into each of the characters and stuff like that. Yeah, what's important about a good action sequence is, uh, you know, a change in stakes, escalation, I guess, is the best thing. And part of escalation is, uh, you know, either just entering into elements into the fight sequence and stuff, which is sort of what's great about that first fight sequence while they're training mm-hmm. in the second issue. Mm-hmm. Is that the terrain is, you know, part of the, the action sequence being successful is how Sizem uses the terrain. To yeah. Fly. Well, and, and that's the thing. Like, I actually did, uh, I, I went, you know, looking, I went Googling through um, the uh, Canadian Forces uh, website and locations to actually find an artillery range in southwestern Ontario. And so that's where they are. It's oh. like an existing artillery range in southwestern Ontario. Um, that again, it, it more or less looks like that. And, and uh, so I, I started thinking, well, if they're, if they're actually using the thing for an artillery range, then it's going to end up pretty beaten up. And really, if you've got a guy who's got a geokinesis, essentially, um, the terrain is going to get pretty beat up. The only place he could do it safely would be an artillery range. 
Mm-hmm. So let's sort of incorporate that into, uh, again, the training exercise. Very cool. Um, so I wanted to ask a question. One of the characters I really enjoyed was Recap. Um, when did you, you come up with the idea? Because I, I really like the idea of a, uh, a hero that, uh, that has a power, but that power, you know, using that power causes him, you know, some either, you know, discomfort or some pain. So that, yeah. that's the case with Recap. When did, when did you come up with him? Ah, uh, he actually was, I think, okay, so in terms of the order of creation, Polar Knight came first. Um, Recap came shortly after. He was maybe the second or third character that I came across. And I don't know um, whether or not you've had these sort of things or just sort of, they're, they're just like, uh, like a name or a word sort of pops into your head mm-hmm. and things just sort of flow out of that. And I had... Um, for whatever reason, like the name or the word recap had popped into my mind. And I started thinking, okay, well, what could I possibly do to make an interesting character out of that? And I started thinking, okay, so um, I've seen a variety of things where um, I guess, in a way, it's probably influenced unconsciously by um, the Flash TV show and Vibe and how okay. Vibe works. So Vibe will touch objects and he'll get a vibe off of them or something. Um, I was sort of taking it in that direction, not consciously, but I started thinking, okay, so if you had yourself um, a murder victim or whatever, then conceivably maybe he could pick up the gun or even touch the body and sort of experience things from, I'd say, the perspective of the gun. Mm-hmm. Or just the idea of um, objects and/or people having a certain um, spirit to them that he'd be able to tap into, and uh, I thought that this would be a good way to, um, I guess, provide the villain's perspective without directly switching to the villain's perspective. Mm-hmm. So we'd still maintain a certain amount of okay. I'm not quite sure what's going on but you can fill in a lot of the gaps. Yeah, and it probably gives you a uh, unique perspective on the uh, the show-don't-tell rule because, you know, recap mm-hmm. is touching, you know, an individual or an object, mm-hmm. and uh, he's, you know, showing us, you know, with that, you know, that mental imagery that he's getting that he's then mm-hmm. got to convey to other team members. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 a good way to, you know, get us information, get us backstory, but do it in a unique way. So uh, that was another aspect of recap that I really enjoyed. Well, I, I think one of the things also that uh, there is, uh, as you mentioned, there, there is a certain psychological toll that's taken when, you know, especially if you go through a, like a traumatic experience like that, if you're experiencing the perspective of somebody who just, you know, got attacked by a superhuman, um, mm-hmm. that's going to cause a certain amount of, of, of mental trauma, certainly. But um, also, his powers are not what I would would not be combat effects. Mm-hmm. So there is going to be a certain um, self-esteem aspect that would come into things because, uh, according to Logan, we haven't really gotten into the uh, uh, published backstory. But a number of the team members went through genetic manipulation trials, as are uh, as mentioned by Sizem. Mm-hmm. Uh certainly came up. You know, in terms of raw power, a pretty significant winner in that. 
recap would have been considered um, by all right pretty much a a failure of the project because his powers are not something that could be necessarily used in like a an like offensive like perspective. So I think that's going to have some potential to work off of going forward. Just like how is he dealing with the fact that yeah, he knows he's kind of a misfit on the team. He, he provides a valuable aspect to the team, but when it really comes down to it, like if you've got the world coming to an end, he's going to be just as um, defenseless as the civilians that he's trying to uh, like the team is supposed to try to protect. Okay, that's fair. It's very cool. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed that character a lot too. And um, yeah, like Matt said, it's sort of, and that's sort of, that was what reminded me of X-Men a lot where it's sort of the D, like sort of not the the non-romantic superhero power, you know, like, well, I guess it's romantic in a way where it's sort of tragic, like the tragic superhero power. Yeah, well, I, I've seen like, something, uh, there was something that uh, after I had uh, been doing some sort of beta reading with some friends of mine, uh, a friend of mine had sent me this cartoon sort of thing, which uh, I'm not sure where he found it, but it, the the character in the cartoon had sort of similar aspects of things. Okay. Um, where he would sort of experience things. So, but like it, this particular character, what made the whole cartoon thing funny was that it was essentially overdrive. So he effectively couldn't eat celery, for instance, because he would be reacting to the celery. Like he picks up the celery and he you know, feels the pain of the celery being chopped up or whatever. It's like <laughs> it's everything's just like, like how would you eat? How would you do you know, so I, I had to dial that back a little bit. But if you get his power is completely out of control, you'd end up with a person that would say, again, maybe he experiences what you know what the chicken felt. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that would be pretty difficult to to manage. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, and that was something that hadn't even occurred to me. So when my friend sent that to me, I was like, oh, wow. Huh. Okay. <laughs> that's, that, that's the value of a good, uh, good beta reader to uh, mm -hmm. give you, uh, you know, we live with these stories in our head so much that we don't actually, or not, it's not that we don't actually, it's just that we, uh, you know, we, we see it so much that we, we don't put all of those little pieces together. So to have that mm -hmm. beta reader say, hey, you know, if this guy had this power, Mm -hmm. um and it was sort of like unchecked or uh you know always on the on the on switch you know mm -hmm. that that would create that would create issues for him so so oh, that's yeah, very helpful sure. mm -hmm. so you have you have two issues out currently is that uh correct yes now the, the um the first issue um so conchology uh their timelines are pretty ambiguous in terms of like there's their stated timelines and there's real life timelines. Okay. So uh, the initial timelines that I was reading when I first put in the first issue was that it was going to take three to five months for initial approval and then five to eight weeks afterwards for the guided view and process to be implemented. Okay. So I thought, okay. So I submitted things at the end of, uh, end of January. I think it was like January 29th or something that I submitted things. And they process things considerably fast. And um, we were just in the process of finishing up issue two. Um, issue one actually was done a couple of years ago, but um, we had to, uh, I was looking around to see if it was possible to do like a print run with an indie, indie publisher of some sort. And 
things kept getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. And I finally decided, well, if I ever want to do an issue three, I've got to get issue one out to try and build something that resembles the following. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, I was also funding issue two. And issue two was pretty much done at the time that uh, issue one was in process at Comicology. And I thought, well, if they're saying it's going to take three months to approve, I might as well, you know, fire in issue two. By the time that it gets all approved, there'll be, you know, there'll, there'll be a certain time lapse between the two. So I'll have like, I'll have had time to promote issue one. They'll have, you know, people will hopefully be expecting issue two and find uh, Bambi. And they fired that thing through the approval process and everything so fast that it quite literally came out the week after issue one. Oh, so wow. the 19th of February is when the first issue came out and Wednesday, the 26th, is when the second issue came out. <laughs> it just went flying through. And, and there was no way, even when I was trying to get the uh, like viewers and things, they want notice, certainly, which makes sense. But I wouldn't have been able to provide them with anything because I had no idea of how fast everything was going through. So, okay. um, yeah, so that's why there was like a rapid sort of uh, output of the situation. So now I just have to promote them both and hopefully get uh, uh, people interested so that I can, you know, um, do issue three without, you know, breaking the bank. Yeah. So is that your primary distribution method is uh, comicsology and, and digital comics? Uh, at this point, yes, because uh, I was finding like uh, I was doing research into different uh, crowdfunding aspects, uh, whether they be uh indiegogo or kickstarter mainly kickstarter because that's where a lot of uh people i know of and what they had what what i've been finding is that if you didn't have sort of a minimum threshold of followers across all of your social media you just weren't going to have Mm -hmm. and i've seen some campaigns where like you look at it and it's not gonna fly you know it's not gonna down to like the last 45 minutes and all of a sudden oh miraculously there's a thousand dollar donation in. it wasn't really a thousand dollar donation you know that's it seems disingenuous you know it's, uh, the creator obviously put in his own money to sort of top it up and get it um i didn't I, if i was going to be funding it anyway i might as well get the project up and running and going instead of trying to hype people up for a product that didn't mm-hmm. I, I just don't have the reach at this point from like across my social media to, to run something that is going to definitely so I figured, forget it, I'm going to just throw it out there myself. Um, if things go well with the two digital uh, things, if there's an interest that's built up over time, uh, ideally I'll be able to fund the issue three. Uh, or again, if I, if I start to, to get more, I guess, with comments or feedback back that people would like to see print format, I might uh, investigate uh, uh, Indie Planet. Okay. The print on demand service thing. Uh, not sure if I'd want to go that route uh, because I know how people like to have to, you know, first runs and whatever. Uh, not that anything like that could be worth anything in the long run. It's just it's more for the storytelling aspect. But, um, so Indie Planet is possible with the print on demand service. Um, I have again still talked to some of those indie publishers who said, well, look, you know, we understand that you you need to get something coming in. We can always run a print run later. And so that is still possible. There might be a crowdfunding thing later on. Say, okay, well, we've got, we, we want to get the print copy back. Um, another form, another idea that was, that was uh, has been floated 
Uh, are you familiar with the Caliber Comics? I, I've heard the name, yeah. yeah um, they're an indie publisher, but what uh, they do, so their monthly titles come out digitally, and then their trades come out in print. Okay. So what I'm considering also is, is getting up to a point where I've got uh, sufficient to to be considered like a trade paperback, and then trying to to create a campaign to, to get uh, trade paperback version as well very cool yeah it's uh it's kind of uh the 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 nice thing about everybody being connected you know mm -hmm. with with the internet is that you know you do have the ability to um you know make these comics digitally and then get yeah. them out digitally um uh well, and, so, and they, so they're out there for for people to read and you know with the convenience of uh, smartphones and tablets, you know, it's just a, a click of a button and then that uh, that comic is there for, for you to read. Oh, absolutely. And that was the thing. Like, I remember hearing uh, conversations uh, on uh, YouTube. Uh, Benny from Comic Story and, and Rob from Comic Explained have, have both said that essentially they don't buy physical copies anymore because, like, when you look at the nature of what they do, they end up, uh, like, they would fill their houses inside of you know, a week and a half with all the comics that they end up having to like, go through and review and things. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, if you're keeping in mind that sort of mindset, um, that again, comics do take up space. They, 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 they're a physical thing. And um, I could potentially reach a far greater audience uh, without having to worry about shipping costs. Like, Somebody could pick it. Like somebody could at this moment, like order it through Comicsology from Brazil, mm -hmm. and I'm not going to have to worry about shipping something from Canada to Brazil and it taking two or three weeks. And what shape is it going to be there in by the time it gets there? Mm -hmm. um, like, am I going to take this thing by air? Am I going to send it by boat? Like, how am I going to send this thing? Um, so, like, I'm not going to have to worry about that as far as the the uh, fulfillment of it. Uh, the trade-off again is that you don't have the, the, the physical copy in your hands at the moment. Um, but I think that's that's been a trade-off that I've been okay with at this point. Um, so I, I certainly would like to see them in physical form, but at the moment I think it's more important to get the stories out there and see if there's any interest in the characters and the stories. And if there is, then I can keep doing what. I plan to do, and if there's not, then you know what? I gave it a good shot, and uh, the best I could. Yeah, that's that's uh, that sounds like a uh, very good approach. Um, so you're working on issue three, um, and uh, as Noah alluded to earlier, you you've done a uh, you from a story structure tell standpoint, you've done sort of like the self-contained issues. But sort of like with these first two issues, we're we're hinting at like a, a larger story that's that's unfolding. Um, so do you have all of that sort of mapped out and planned, or, or do you have like um, sort of a bible? I, I know the endpoint, uh, okay. and I know where the different characters are going. Uh, I know some the, the central, um, like the uh, the main the, the, the private research group, for instance. Uh, I, I have a um, rogue gallery that has been tied to them already constructed and then sort of figured out. Um, as far as you know, uh, the interpersonal dynamics between the characters, I definitely want to try and spend 
time with the different characters and sort of bring out a little bit more of their personalities and backstories and just sort of, you know, get people ideally invested in who the, who the characters are. Mm-hmm. Um, again, by trying to sort of uh, pair them off and, and sort of uh, um, a balancing act. Um, now, the next issue I wanted to uh, focus a bit more on uh, the Danville character. Um, see whether or not I can get any, any uh, decent sequences with her. Um, I actually, I, I, I've got a soft spot for that character in particular because she's very different in her final inter- incarnation than what she was at the outset. Okay, really? Um, I had started thinking, like, uh, I don't know, did you guys ever watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer? That's I've, the one part of nerdum that I'm like deprived yeah okay. i've i've only seen i've only seen a few uh, episodes here and there okay well the, the, the character concept between behind buffy was the idea that like uh um traditionally in horror films or whatever you've got the tiny little blonde girl who goes in the alley and gets killed mm-hmm. and so they you sort of flip that on um on its head and uh instead of her going in the alley and getting killed it, she goes in the alleyway you know beats out the monsters and comes out in the end. Um, I had been thinking about that. Uh, I, the whole term, so initially Damsel was going to be a, a, a small little blonde. And I started saying to myself, well, that's really not uh, Like, you always see like Damsel in distress, whatever. Damsel, mm-hmm. I, the word Damsel itself is just um, a way of indicating like a young woman. It, it, uh, it comes from the French uh, Demoiselle. Which literally means young, young lady. Um, so I started thinking to myself, okay, well, people are going to have a mental image of what a damsel is supposed to look like. And she's going to be the, the, the petite or blonde or whatever, right? And I started thinking, well, okay, well, let's take everything visually that people expect out of a damsel and let's flip it. So mm-hmm. tiny little blonde, Serena Williams. <laughs> so it's a, you know, um, basically you know power her up to like non-binary captain marvel form and throw her out there and take take the name as sort of a uh, sort of a jab at the time so that was that's how she came about um so i wanted to sort of play around with her a little bit more in issue three uh there was um some bizarre little uh stories that come out of different um uh, Canadian uh, news sources like they've they got the like Canadian UFO watcher, whatever. There was a report of a couple of years ago of um, aliens being sighted in this little town outside of Winter, which is near Detroit. Uh, and they knew it, was, it had to be aliens because these aliens apparently made off with this person's like silverware, their sunglasses, and a belt buckle, mm. and, and escaped into the backyard through a rip in time. That's wow. actually that's in the report. And I was like, oh I can do this. <laughs> so uh, I'm gonna play around with it a little bit. Uh, at least that's the initial draft. I could change my mind and switch it up a little bit. But, uh, but that's where the, the initial draft is going to be. Um, but yeah, so it, it, things are in motion and, and, and things will continue to uh, um, to build with the private research group as well. Uh, but they're not ready to 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 take center stage at this point. 
Very cool. Well, yeah. I enjoyed the I enjoyed the the two issues that I I got to read, and I'm excited uh, for for more stuff to come. Noah, do you have any uh, any final thoughts? Any final questions before we we wrap up here? Final thought is I'm excited for issue three, and you've got yeah you've got you've got a new fan. I'm 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 in it for the the long haul now. Cause it's uh I hope we get to have you back on for issue three because uh, I'm excited to talk about all these characters' journeys and stuff. Okay. Well, sounds good to me. I'm, I'm more than happy when we get to that point. I'm more than happy to uh, come back on. Awesome. Uh, so, Alan, um, why don't you let folks know where they can follow you and the, the comic online um, so that they, they know about these two issues and they can, you know, be updated when three and then future issues come out. Okay. Uh, well, on, uh, on Twitter, uh, we're uh, at Impact Comics. Um, so that's, you know, twitter.com slash impact comic if you're looking at it on the web browser. Um, we have a, uh, a Facebook page as well, which is facebook.com slash project impact comic, all one word. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have an Instagram, which is instagram.com slash project impact comic uh, as well. Um, the two issues are available on uh, uh, the first issue is 32 pages of story. Uh, and the second issue is 23 pages of story. Um, so I like to think we're getting pretty decent value for, uh, for what, uh, people might be, uh, be looking for. But, uh, the typical Marvel or DC comics is about 18 to 21 pages at this mm-hmm. point. Um, but I like to think you're getting value for what, uh, for the time you spend with us. Uh, but yeah, comicology for the first two issues. Uh, there are, uh, links regularly posted on uh, on Twitter as well as on the Facebook account and uh, um, updates as far as art as we're going along uh, on the internet. Very cool. So uh, I don't use comicsology as much as I probably probably should, but uh, is the best way to just sort of go into the search, search bar and type in the, the title uh, once you're in the, the app or, or the uh, website? Yeah, the, the handy thing about that, okay, so comicsology, because it is run under Amazon, you can mm-hmm. actually log in with like I I I you know, presume that you use Amazon at least occasionally for shopping for books. Oh yeah, definitely. Um you can actually log into Comicsology using your Amazon login. You don't have to make a separate login for Comicsology. You can just use your using Amazon login. Okay. Uh so use your existing Amazon login. And in uh right now we're in the uh the newly released section. Uh but again we'd be under the indie comics if you wanted to scroll through. With Comicsology, if you actually literally want to look at all the issues, it goes alphabetically based on the, the title of the book as okay. opposed to the publisher. But the easiest way to find it would be to go up in the search bar, and if you just type in project, then we will be one of the first ones that comes up. There's, there's only a handful that actually use project in the title. So if you awesome. Type project, yeah. then we come up pretty much very cool. Yeah. So anybody who's heard this and is, is interested, uh, just on, hop on over there and, and start typing project into that search bar and, and, and find it. So Alan, I, I, I want to thank you again for being on. I, I really enjoyed uh, the book. I enjoyed the action, the humor, um, and just sort of the, the, the ways you went about introducing characters, giving us different characters. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a very enjoyable read. So I encourage uh, folks to check it out. Um, if anybody listening wants to give us a rating and review on whatever podcast service that you're using, we'd really appreciate it. If you'd like to follow the podcast, we are on Twitter at construct We are on Instagram 
at Constructing Comics YouTube and Facebook is Constructing Comics. And we'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you.